Hello and welcome to the AWS Podcast. Simon Leisha here. Great to have you back as ever. Bit of a mixture of things in today's podcast. Going to take you through some of the uh, latest happenings and things that have uh, been released just to keep you up to date. But first, I want to regale you with a little bit of a story. Um, one of the things that certainly I'm very focused on uh, as I work at AWS is staying on the tools and um, doing things on a regular basis that involve building. Uh, at the end of the podcast, I always do say, keep on building, and uh, I, indeed I do. And uh, I did some development over the weekend that reminded me to talk about revisiting services that you may be familiar with or that you may have looked at in the past and maybe haven't met all the needs you have. Um, because they do change very rapidly, as we tend to see week by week. And it was interesting. I was building something that involved a a processing pipeline, and it had some uh, input from external sources, and so I used the API Gateway. And one of the things that has been released lately in the API Gateway in the last few months is the ability to define validation rules using JSON schemas um, for input. So if I'm posting an event to the API gateway, I can set in place rules to verify and validate what some of those fields should look like. Should they be string fields? Should they be number fields? Is there a uh, a range, if it's a number, for example, between one and five, etc.? And the nice thing about all this is that API gateway can do that verification and validation for you, which means you end up with less of that boilerplate code that we're all familiar with writing. Now, you still may do some very custom validation and verification that's uh, easily done through Lambda as well, but it just shows how much can be taken away. And I kind of took this theory even further because I was building this processing tool that needed to ingest pretty significant amounts of data and send it to be processed in different ways, and I needed to be able to query it, et cetera. And I really thought, well, let me do it with as little componentry as possible and as simple as possible. And I kind of took the, uh, I think, somewhat apocryphal uh, claim of the Michelangelo quote um, You know, when they said to Michelangelo, how did you make the statue of David? He said, it's easy. I just uh, chip away the stone that doesn't look like David. Um, in this case, I was just trying to build as little as possible to reveal the functionality I needed. And so in this case, I was able to combine a number of different services, none of which involved servers themselves, to build my end-to-end workflow. Now, I'm not going to get into the nuances of exactly what I'm building and why, et cetera, but really, it was really interesting to take a flow of information, basically allow it to be sent to an API gateway that could be secured and have throttling and verification validation. And then that information was then sent on to a Lambda function that then posted that particular piece of information into the simple notification service. Now, this let me suddenly fan out to a variety of different Lambda, Lambda functions, all of which subscribe to that particular SNS topic or different SNS topics depending on what I wanted them to do. Now, again, really trivial to create that relationship, and it meant that I could inspect the payload and do different actions based on that payload. So, for example, one part of my stream ended up writing from the Lambda function into Kinesis Firehose, and it was writing a JSON payload into Kinesis Firehose, which was then stored into S3. Now, that was a configuration effort versus a coding effort. I actually had to do very little to implement that, including things like encryption and compression and all that sort of good stuff, all the ions that you need to have in there. And then once the data was stored onto S3, I could easily configure Athena to query it for me and create tables and then hook that up to QuickSight and look at my data. And it was really interesting as I sat there in an increasingly late hour of the weekend because once you get engrossed in these things, you can just keep on going. And I kept thinking, wow, there's all this stuff I'm not doing uh, whilst getting the results. I was really focused on 
the differentiating pieces. And this really comes back to this whole discussion we have often about undifferentiated heavy lifting. You know, validating input data, really important, un, un, undifferentiated. Um, sending data around to different locations to be processed according to business rules, uh, undifferentiated, but really, really important. Being able to report quickly and flexibly on huge sets of data at very low cost, undifferentiated, but uh, very, very important. So think about what you're building. Think about the components that you're using and how they may have evolved and changed over time because it really will help you reframe the way you build systems. And often when I speak to architects, I'm very much a uh, uh, an advocate of staying current, not necessarily using the newest, coolest thing just because it's newest and coolest because that's often not the way to go, but to look for things that genuinely make things easier to do, typically have less moving parts, are very, very elastic and flexible, and operate at an effective cost. If you're picking those components, you're probably doing pretty well, but remember that those components will change and evolve and improve over time, and you want to take the benefits of those. So if you can refactor on a regular basis and improve your situation, it's on you to do that. So just a little reminder, get your hands on the tools and see what's different. So let's talk about what's different. One of the more recent announcements relates to mobile development and application development. And Ionic is one of the leading open source frameworks for building mobile applications. And it uses JavaScript and Angular and CSS. And they're all handy tools to use. And if you know them, it's nice to be able to build stuff. Um, but typically, any front-end system needs a pretty sophisticated collection of back-end services to round out that functionality. Things like storage, databases, user management, you know, the, the Apparently trivial things like sign up, sign in, identity, security that are actually quite hard to do, messaging, user engagement, etc. These can be hard to do. Um, so AWS and Ionic have introduced a mobile web and hybrid application on GitHub with an exported mobile hub project so that you can deploy your apps and mobile backend really easily. So link in the show notes, but you can essentially get going really, really fast with really solid backend capabilities at very, very low barrier to entry. Now, the world of big data is an interesting one because there are so many tools and so many components and so many things. One of the most important things, though, with big data is to be able to visualize the information that you're trying to report upon. So the uh, Amazon QuickSight team have released some changes recently. You can now integrate Presto and Apache Spark on EMR as well into your visualization. So this means you have these new connectors that allow you to visualize the information that you're analyzing. Now, there's a really good example on the big data block, so I'll link to that as well. But what I'm finding a lot of customers are saying is that with Amazon QuickSight, they have more and more choices to the sources of data they can ingest and report upon really, really easily. So these plugins make things a lot quicker and a lot easier. And that's kind of important when you're wrestling and wrangling with different data sources that might change over time. Speaking about data sources changing over time, another thing that uh, often is a challenge is moving data between different databases. So the AWS Schema Conversion Tool uh, now allows you to export from SQL Server into Amazon Redshift. So if you've got a data warehouse that you're currently running on Microsoft SQL Server and you need to move it to Amazon Redshift, which is, of course, a massively parallel processing database that operates in the cloud at very high scale and performance, and very effective cost model. Um, you can now do that using the AWS Schema Conversion Tool end-to-end. Um, -to -end. This allows you to change the, um, or to set
set up, I should say, the structures of the tables, the databases, any other components that need to be set across. You can do a trial run uh, before using it, um, and it'll show you what it would do if you ran it in uh, in anger. And uh, it runs on Windows, Mac, Fedora, and Ubuntu. It doesn't cost you anything to use either. So it makes the migration process really, really easily. In fact, it reduces the risk substantially because really the schema and schema conversion bit is often the hardest part of these processes. It automates it for you and makes it much easier to take advantage of. Another nice little change that's taken place uh, affects you if you use AWS CloudFormation. Now, of course, if you're building any sort of repeatable uh, infrastructure or application deployment, then AWS CloudFormation is definitely your friend because you can essentially document that deployment as a template and deploy it repeatedly. You can parameterize it. You can use it to spin up multiple environments. Really, it is a boon to your productivity and repeatability. So now you can provision AWS WAF on application load balancer resources using AWS CloudFormation. So AWS WAF is a web application firewall that lets you protect your applications against common web exploits that could affect your availability, compromise security, or consume excessive resources. AWS WAF gives you control over which traffic to allow or to block to your web applications by defining customizable web security rules. So now you can include those definitions and the creation of those resources in your AWS CloudFormation templates. So I know a lot of people have been waiting for that one to be available. So you can go ahead and do that now, which is pretty cool. Now, of course, the theme of uh, this week's show with these little changes that can make life a lot easier. And so another one is the ability of AWS CloudTrail to have data event delivery to Amazon CloudWatch logs. So now what this means is that you can send S3 data events that are recorded by CloudTrail to Amazon CloudWatch logs to do search, alerting, or additional analysis. Now, this is really nice because these CloudTrail data events let you have really detailed S3 object-level API activity. So things like what the account of the caller was, um, IP address of an API call, a time of an API call, etc. Previously, you could send the management events. Now you can also do both the management events and the object-level Amazon S3 events as well. So, for example, you can create an alarm to receive a notification when you create, modify, or delete a file in the S3 bucket. So this is now available uh, in U.S. East Ohio, U.S. East North Virginia, U.S. West North California, U.S. West Oregon, Asia-Pacific Mumbai, Asia-Pacific Seoul, Asia-Pacific Singapore, Asia-Pacific Sydney, Asia-Pacific Tokyo, EU Frankfurt, EU Ireland, and South America, Sao Paulo public regions. So a nice one there. You could probably build some pretty cool different things with that one. And speaking of CloudWatch, there are some new metrics available for CloudWatch, and these are from the VPN uh, side of the house. So you can now uh, get the following metrics from Amazon VPC VPNs. You can get the tunnel state, which will be up or down, the tunnel data in, hard to say, uh, which is the number of bytes received through the VPN tunnel, and the tunnel data out, which of course maps the other way. So this gives you a few more metrics to monitor and make sure things are operating the way you'd like them to be operating. Now let's talk about auto-scaling. Auto-scaling is one of the things that customers use all the time to better map, if I can put it that way, the um, profile of their application to the current usage of that application. They want to make it bigger when more people are using it and smaller when less are using it, and that's great. Um, And you can do lots and lots of powerful things with auto-scaling. Now you can also have resource-level permissions. So you can now configure IAM policies that reference auto-scaling groups 
or launch configurations using ARNs or wildcards and specify the users and the actions that are permitted under different conditions. So this lets you have more control over who can do what and when with their autoscaling groups. So for example, you could control the EC2 instance type. So you may say, well, it can only be M4 large um, and which specific users can use that particular instance type to build their autoscaling groups. You could also limit the maximum size to which they could create an autoscaling group. You may say, well, this particular user can create an autoscaling group up to 50 nodes, um, any more than that, and they don't have permission to do that. So a really neat change, quite a sophisticated one, that allows you to have more control over who can do what and when appropriate to your environment. Now, I'm a big fan of changes that are big and changes that are small that make life easier for our customers. And I'm going to share a bigger one shortly, but I'm going to give you the smaller one first. This is for AWS Code Deploy. It now allows you to choose how to handle files when it is doing a deployment. So you can choose when there are files on an instance that were not part of the previous deployment. So before, Code Deploy would fail the deployment if there was a discrepancy between the files present at a target location and those in the last successful deployment. So if someone had done something maybe manually to the box um, or to the instance, I should say, thinking very old school there, um, then it would, it would fail. Now you can choose how Code Deploy responds. So for example, you could say fail the deployment, so the old behavior, retain the content, so leave it there, or overwrite the content. So you get a lot more choice about what you're doing in that different scenario. So again, it's a small change, but you can imagine for some people's workflow, that may have a really, really big impact. And now the big change of which many of you may have already been experiencing because we announced this a while back and people have been opting in for this. This is the new Amazon S3 console. So certainly one of our uh, most broadly used services and something that's fundamental to many architectures that people use. The console itself is a completely new user interface. It has a really nice new user experience and also has support for two new features, object level tagging and storage analytics. Now, this new interface lets you see things much more clearly and much more easily with, with less clicks. Uh, it uses a compact card format, so you can see the status of any property click-free. In fact, you'll be amazed how few clicks you use these days to get the information you need. Um, you can now search for buckets using keywords, which is great if you've got lots and lots of buckets like I do. And you can also copy bucket properties from existing buckets whilst creating new buckets. So it's nice to say, well, I'm creating this new bucket, but I want it to look like this other one. Rather than having to go and map all the properties, you can just go ahead and do it yourself really, really easily. Um, you can also now understand what the effect of operations you're going to do on objects will look like. You can see the number of opera, oh, sorry, you can see the number of objects that would be affected before you initiate an operation. So for example, if you're doing a cut and paste, maybe changing a storage class, changing encryption or making public, you can now see the extent of the change and just verify that it's mapping with your expectations as well. Also, we now have a really nice progress bar visible at the bottom of the console. You can see how many changes are taking place and how much time it will take to take place. Um, and you can also click on any operation in the progress bar to look at more details about what's going on and deep dive. It's really, really nice new console. There's a great video as well that talks about the changes so you can familiarize yourself with it. So you'll be seeing that it's now available to all users in all regions. And personally, I really like it. So uh, get on, get onto it. So at the start of the episode, I was telling you about all the interesting things I was doing on my coding weekend and um, all the delightful things that became available that weren't previously available. And in fact, there were two features that I used that only became available a few days before I needed it, which is always good timing. 
Uh, one of them was that uh, Amazon Athena now adds API and CLI and AWS SDK support and also audit logging with AWS Collateral. So firstly, you can now run queries on Amazon Athena via the REST API and using the AWS SDK for Java, .NET, Node.js, PHP, Python, Ruby, Go, and C++. Make sure you upgrade to the latest version to get advantage of that. But you can now run queries and send it um, SQL that you want to run against Athena tables um, from the SDK and also from the CLI. So this makes it a lot easier to interact with the service and drive it from different sources as well. There's also now audit logging with AWS CloudTrail, so you can log any actions that you require for governance, compliance, or auditing. And you can also see who's running queries and when, which is really nice. Now, remember, Amazon Athena is currently available in US East, Northern Virginia, and Ohio, and US West, Oregon. So you can use it there. And the other service that had uh, perfect timing for my purposes was AWS X-Ray, which made AWS Lambda request tracing generally available. AWS X-Ray is really useful for tracing requests made through a number of different application components. Now with the literally the click of a checkbox, which is an experience I really enjoyed, I have to say, just clicking the button and getting it working, you can now trace requests that are traveling through any number of AWS Lambda functions. So you're suddenly you have this beautiful map that you could look at about how your particular requests are traveling through the different service components that make up the end-to-end process that you're going through. You can see uh, things like uh, Lambda service overhead, function initialization time, function execution time. You can also use the SDK to create your own trace segments. You can annotate your traces. You can view trace segments for downstream calls made to your Lambda functions. It's really, really nifty. Now, currently you can use the X-Ray SDKs for Node, JS, and Java with Lambda. And the X-Ray support for Lambda is available in all regions where both X-Ray and Lambda are available. So really something worth turning on, trivial to use, and very, very powerful. So that's it. A raft of different things, some big, some small, uh, all very interesting depending on your context. So if there's a service you've used in the past and you haven't used it recently, maybe go back and visit it and see if the way it's working is maybe different, enhanced, has some additional functionality that appeals to you. We do love to get your feedback, AWS podcast at amazon.com. And as always, keep on building.